Agile Rabbit make events for curious minds. In partnership with the University of Exeter, we focus on ideas, global affairs, and the natural and scientific world. These events are set in contrasting venues across the Southwest to provide quirky experiences which welcome conversation. For more information, visit agile-rabbit.com. Here is Derek Gow talking about beavers and rewilding. It was kind of, you know, accident that brought me to this creature rather than design. And when I started to work with them about a quarter of a century ago, there had been other people who, who looked at the possibility of reintroducing this remarkable creature, possibly who didn't quite understand just how profoundly important it is. But the idea of reintroducing the beaver to Britain is not new. It was first raised in the 1930s by a guy called Lord Onslow, who was involved with, with the campaign at that time to set up um, national parks. And then in the 60s and the 70s, different groups of people came together to say this is something we should do. And every single one of those efforts failed. So when I began to develop an interest in this, there were very few of the guys who, who had been involved in a project in the Lake District in Grisdale Forest to reintroduce the beaver um, at that time after bringing animals from Sweden who were still alive. And I never met any of them. The last one died a few days um, before we were due to meet him. But it was you know, quite a, a well thought through project which just foundered entirely on the back of bureaucracy. The Forestry Commission were very supportive of it. They were keen to see it happen. And in about, oh, I don't know, you know, kind of the early 1980s, they took the project to the old Nature Conservancy Council, which was the, the original government statutory arm for the nature conservation body, who dismissed it within two weeks. And, and there's a very sad letter by one of the, um, the commissioners saying they could never understand how such a, a visionary project of its type, so well thought through, had just been dismissed. And in the end, he reckoned, he reckoned that the people who looked at it just looked at it. And it was too much trouble. It was too unusual. It was something they didn't understand. And therefore, they just swept it off their desk. And it finished. You know, the whole idea of bringing beavers back languished for about another quarter century, rose again when we signed the Berne Convention in 1995. It took from 1995 until 2009 to get a license to turn out a very small population of beavers in Knapdale and Kintyre. By then, things had started to move in a different way. So the beaver journey has been the most remarkable thing but my, my, my beginning in nature conservation was with rare breeds of domestic livestock. It's hard to imagine now, when some of these animals are so common in the wider countryside, that, that in the, the early, the late 1980s, you know, 1970s, late 1980s, that these were really unusual animals. Farming at the time was going through its zenith of development. You were getting grants for all sorts of different improvements, for larger tractors, larger combines. So at that time, a lot of these old breeds that were, you know, that had been kind of like welded to parts of the British Isles, so things like soy sheep on the island of Archipelago St. Kilda. Soy means sheep isle in Norse, and they had been left by the Vikings there. These older Aboriginal breeds were passing very fast, and it wasn't until in the early 1970s when an organization called the Rare Breed Survival Trust was formed that their loss was really they kind of halted uh, and they started to become much more common creatures that they are today. So when I was approximately nine or ten years old I was given a Shetland sheep as a birthday present and I was also given a book about old breeds of British livestock written by a guy called John Vince uh, and you know talked about the history of them, the white park cattle coming with the beaker people and, and, and this developed a kind of like enduring and lifelong fascination with these creatures which is still with me to this day. 
I worked in agriculture for five years when I left school. And then, uh, because I had an interest in rare beads of domestic livestock, I was asked to initially manage a collection of rare beads of cattle and sheep that were kept in a country park on the outskirts of Glasgow. And then when the old zoo that was there, when the, um, the superintendent left it, I was asked if I wanted to manage the zoo. And you looked at it and you thought, this is a horrible thing. You know, we've got, you know, three-legged foxes and one-eyed owls and, you know, senescent wolves. Why would you want to have anything to do with this? So I said no initially, I wanted nothing to do with it. And then my boss said, well look, you know, Derek, if, you, if you'd like to do it, I'll, I'll, we'll get money and we'll send you to um, the Jersey Wildlife Preservation Trust, to Gerald Durrell Zoo on Jersey for the summer. You can go and talk to all these people who are working with the most miraculous range of threatened and endangered species the world over. And then you can come back with some new ways of thinking. And that's what happened. So I went to Jersey, met the most marvellous people, people who were working with the last of the sad volcano raps, all sorts of different people doing amazing things with very few resources. But this idea that the zoos should be something more than sideshow entertainments was visionary. Now, I'm not going to say got it right. There were many things that Jersey Zoo did in the early years which just didn't work. But what he did was he inspired a whole bunch of people long after he was dead to go out into the world and try to do things under circumstances that are commonly appallingly difficult for the benefit of wild creatures that very deeply need them. When you come to Britain and you think it's all ordered and organised here, you don't have to study long to realise that all the big animals are gone. Everything that was with us on this island after the, the ice opened up the channel has now passed in time. Sure, some of them, like red deer, um, were originally here, but the red deer that we have now in Britain are a propagated race. They've been brought in at different times purely to support the interest that the rich and the powerful had in hunting in exactly the same way um, as has happened with foxes and badgers and a range of other species. We have now got to the stage, and we got to the stage a long, long time ago where it wasn't just the big animals that we extricated from the land, it was the little and medium-sized animals as well. You take a little bird like a night heron with a black crest and a, a red eye, they were called brews in the Middle Ages, and they were captured in huge numbers from the dwindling fens and fattened in wicker cages so they could be brought to medieval feasts. And, and these feasts were not just, they weren't just things where people came to eat, they were statements of great power. So if you were somebody who had reach and ability, you had to have a feast where there was a huge surfeit of boar and bustards and cranes and all manner of things so that you could establish in the, in the minds of the people attending the fact that you were somebody of worth. And then, of course, as time moves on, you know, all sorts of other things happen. You have poor people, you know, who are farming in an entirely subsistence fashion, who live right the way through the landscape. And, and when you go to your know, remote glens of Wales or Scotland or Ireland today, and you see these ruins of shillings and bothies, these were people that lived in an environment where they would simply not tolerate any creature at all that took anything from them. If it was a potato, a sprout, the only solution was death. And that was it. And that death has been so thorough and so complete that even now for little things that we desire and cherish and want to conserve, 
they too are slipping away fast because in our use of the landscape, not only have we diminished the creatures that live there, but we've diminished the prospect of, of the creatures that live here. So water voles, which were once a, a common subterranean species right up into the Middle Ages, we have pushed effectively back into tiny, tight, narrow corridors along what were the rivers and what were the streams and what are now turgid ditches full of putrefying silt. And, and chemicals and pesticides. When I started working with this creature, which I worked with for, again, somewhere in the region of quarter of a century, and having bred somewhere in the region of about 30, the 30,000th animal, we think, this year for a reintroduction project at Trentham in Staffordshire, it was estimated that they had collapsed by 97% throughout their British range. But that 97% in 2004 still meant there was somewhere in the region of 1.4 million left. Now, there is somewhere in the region of 77,000 left and they are fading fast and are, uh, this, this commonality of fading applies to species after species after species. When I went to Jersey, we talked a lot about captive breeding creatures and you come back and you look at what there is in Britain, you think, well, how could this ever apply to the creatures that are here? There's not much. We need to captive breed to reintroduce. And I became involved with waterfall conservation along with a whole range of my contemporaries and as it turned out the thing I was charged with was captive breeding them because we knew nothing about them. We didn't know, you know how long they lived really, we didn't know how productive they were, we did not know what their breeding cycles were and we made loads of mistakes. We spent about five years getting, th you know, getting things wrong time after time after time and it took that time to get to the stage where we came, you know, we knew our, our subjects well enough that we could confidently predict what was going to happen when you put a male and a female together um, into a cage like this and in March. You, they, they, you gave them a bale of straw which they could burrow into to make nests, you gave them lots of wood bark um, to ensure they had tunnelling abilities and then you gave them a tray to wash so they could maintain their fur sleek and waterproof so that if you did get the stage where you could release them back into the wild they would be completely ready to do it but of course you know in the early 2000s we had no knowledge as to whether the captive bred animals we were producing um, were going to be fit candidates for wild release so we had to attempt a trial and the first trial we ran was in a place called Barn Elms in London. It's a wildfire and wetlands trust site. You know, a lot of reed beds. It was within municipal London, so it was reckoned that mink, um, one of the, the real problems this animal has, because of course mink, an introduced North American predator, hunts them in the way that no native predator does. So when we reintroduced about 160 water voles to Barn Elms into what we thought were near ideal habitats, it was believed that because London was so urbanised that mink really weren't going to be a problem there. And for about six years, they weren't and then eventually the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust had to start killing mink which were coming up the Thames. But the long and the short of it was that that population which was put into near ideal habitat in 2000 is still there today, still producing babies, are very evident in the, the wetland landscapes throughout the reserve, thinning the reed beds, digging burrows, doing all the things the water voles need to do. So what this, this initial trial showed us was that it was possible to capture breed water voles in large numbers and providing those animals were released with a good degree of genetic diversity to re-establish populations that were large, vigorous and capable of surviving in the long term in the wild. And that's important not just for reasons of nostalgia. It's not about this little guy being ratty from Wind in the Willows. It's all about their natural function. These are little animals. They're little animals. They weigh about 300 grams. But these little animals are 
incredibly important. They are water gardeners. So here's a really simple example from the uplands of Scotland. And so on the right hand side shows you what a stream looks like when there are many water bowls in it. You can see that the rich sweet grasses have more or less been eaten out and, and a whole range of other bitterer plants which they're not so fond of are present intermittently along the edge. The burrowing and the excavation that these little animals do in the banks is absolutely critical because that's the, the habitat the living space that the toads and the frogs and the snakes and the invertebrates are all going to take up when winter comes along. What the voles do is by, by burrowing and creating these complicated turns and contours, deep areas and small streams, impoundments of other water, is to create all sorts of tiny living spaces for all sorts of other creatures that are utterly dependent on them and also by doing so they change the structure of the plants. No voles, these things don't happen. They are also the Big Mac of the vole world. A field vole, which is the nearest comparative species, weighs about 30 grams. A male water vole, 330 grams. If you have water voles in great abundance, living through reed beds and wetlands in our environment in great numbers, then everything that wants to eat a vole can feed. If you don't have them there, then okay, there are some voles left, but they're declining as well. They don't live in silage fields which are mown three or four or five times a year. They're declining as well, and when you lose the water vole, you're left with other toxic species like brown rats, which of course are being poisoned by us, or dwindling rabbits, and the problem you have as a predator is that your food supply goes down. The loss of these other elemental creatures, these things that are at the bottom of food pyramids, is a critical um, concern. And that's why I came to the beaver. I spent, I don't know how long, working with water voles, 15, 20 years, and you know, at that time we focused on running up and down Britain and digging ponds um, to ensure they had open sunny wetlands they required, cutting down trees, again to ensure that the, that the trees did not overhang the vegetation on the banks of rivers or on ponds, and, and so that sunlight permeated and these riparian features grew, the great dense beds of sedge and rush and iris that they, they could so evidently only do when the trees did not shade them out. Every single thing you did was failed and limited in time. So I worked on one project on the River um, Door in, in, in Monmouthshire with the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust who got a massive 1.2 million grant and then another further 1 million grant to restore the Victorian trout fishery there by cutting down approximately 70 miles length of alder and willow that were lining the banks. While the money was coming in and the fencing was there and you had the scientists and the mink killers, we could reintroduce water voles which spread right the way through the whole river system. That project ran in the early 2000s. The last time I was there, the trees are 30, 40 feet high again and, and the habitat that we created entirely artificially is all gone. The silts would, would come down through the streams, fill the ponds up, the water would go. The cattle would break through your fences you put up 10 years ago and be back trampling the banks. And it became abundantly obvious that once again, there had to be a creature that created living space for the little creatures that was dynamic and that the little creatures were dependent on. And that's when I started to learn about the beaver. I traveled to Russia and to Poland. I was lucky enough to go to North America, to Bavaria, to France, to have a look at what these miraculous animals do. And together with a few determined colleagues, 
we decided we must make a significant life effort to return them. Now, returning beavers to Britain has not been without its ups and downs. So at the moment, those of you who read about them in the press will know that for the last three years, the Scottish Government has been granting cull licences to farmers on the Tay to just shoot them. So if they're in the kind of place where the farmer doesn't want them or the farmer doesn't like them, you pick up a phone to somebody in Scottish Natural Heritage's office, tell them that the beavers are a big problem for you and somebody might come out and see them. You might now be offered um, compensation or advice with regard to what you can and can't do. But at the end of that, you'll also be, you know, if you push hard enough, you'll get a license to kill them. Myself and Dr. Rasheen Campbell-Palmer, who's a friend of mine, have been catching beavers on the Tay and moving them from Scotland down, for, down to enclosed projects in England for a number of years. So we catch every year about 30 to 40, and the farmers shoot somewhere in the region of about 100. And those farmers in Tayside and the arable areas will quite commonly tell you that one of the reasons why they're shooting beavers is the beavers build dams in their drainage ditches. It's a very flat landscape. They're growing straight carrots in sand um, using irrigation from the river. So you have these big water cannons firing out in the field. And the reason they're doing that is because you, the consumers, want to buy straight carrots. And if you don't grow your carrots in sand, you don't get straight carrots. You get ones that are funny, twisty shaped. And, and that's how the carrot industry goes. So straight carrots of the future, twisty carrots, no good at all. But what the farmers do once they've got the license to kill the beavers is they go and pick their carrots, the carrots are washed and the carrots are, are bagged and they are sent to the shops. At the end of the week when the carrots go slimy, the zoo that is helping us to save the beavers and where the vet screening occurs, go and pick up the slimy carrots, take them back to the zoo and feed them to the beavers that would otherwise have been shot because they would have been eating the carrots that um, you know in the field. But these are the kind of lifescapes they create. You know, you look at the fuss there is now of villages burning down. Who would ever have thought we'd have seen droughts like this in Britain? About the land burning, water in aquifers running out. This is what a beaver dam looks like. It sits under trees, it holds water. So these animals are lifesavers, not just for, for birds and amphibians and dragonflies and damselflies and fish, but everything that needs water which would not be there if they had not built the impoundments in the medieval drains. They save all life and the open, sunny wetlands they create, which are, can be large and incredibly complex, are absolutely ideal living habitat for water bulls. Without the beavers, the water bulls can't survive. Without the beavers, willow tits. This week we filmed a family of willow tits following the parents through uh, uh, an area of gorse that is not far away from the beaver dams. But the point is that one of the things they require from a nesting point of view are dead trees that are friable like balsa. They bore into these dead trees to create the, the, the little tight secluded nests they want for their chicks. And then of course, as soon as they, their chicks are hatched, they're out feeding, they have to go out and feed on insects in great abundance. And that is exactly the kind of habitat that beavers provide them with. It's another species which is in large part dependent on this animal. And the more you look at a whole guild of creatures, the more you realize that they are impoverished in their living ability if the beavers are not there to provide them for them. And that doesn't just pertain to species that are here. What we can be sure of is that in our, our cataclysmic destruction of living space in Britain is that many of the things that were here we can no longer find any trace of at all. So if you look at the very early, the, the people who start to talk about natural history, 
and they're not really talking about natural history in the 15th, 16th century. They're talking about things like these little green tree frogs as being a remedy for some sort of ailment. And they say that these frogs were here. As time goes on, bearing in mind that the wetlands are being drained, their habitat's been destroyed on a huge scale, they then start to say, well, we're not sure about that. So a couple of centuries after the 15th century, people are saying, well, they come from Europe. We're not sure about it. A population of them survive on a pond in the New Forest until the 1980s. Nobody knows where they've come from. But bear in mind, nobody pays any attention to the amphibians at all until the time of Gilbert White in the mid-1700s. And, and then they become extinct, and that's the last of them. And one of the things we should be doing if we're looking at rewilding and recreating landscapes and we're so short of food is realise that beaver-generated habitats where there are ponds of different depths, um, different temperatures, flowing water, shallow water, deep water, offer a very broad range of European amphibians, which again are at the very base of the food pyramid, the opportunity to spawn at different times of year, choose the different habitats they like, and to exploit them in great numbers. So when you walk through my farm, maybe not today, but if you're after a shower of rain, you know, where the beavers are, you will be walking on carpets of tiny common frogs, carpets of tiny toads. There are so many of them, but these wee things are all gone now. And because they're gone now, and they're only present in continental Europe, if we want to restore these to the landscapes the beavers are regenerating, then we're going to need to go and get them in buckets and put them there. While we don't know then whether tree frogs were ever you know, really native to Britain or not, and bear in mind it's that size, so you're never going to find a mandible, you know, we do know that they're from um, you know, ex archaeological excavations in Wales and London, the other species definitely were. So there were definitely agile frogs, um, definitely moor frogs, so you'd think, well, you know, that makes sense. I mean, it's just a frog. What's the problem about, you know, introducing a frog? Well, the problem is culture. It's not just zoos. It's when we look at nature conservation. Nature conservation for the sake of a landscape really begins as a trend of sentient human thought approximately 120 years ago with people like John Muir and President Kruger, a whole range of different people who look at landscapes and to an extent the wildlife in them, though it's the landscape that's the most important thing to begin with, and who say we must preserve this for its intrinsic value. They persuade the politicians to act in the interest of civilization looking forward. But it's only a hundred years old. Before that, if we kept wild animals or we kept woodlands, we always kept them to hunt. And that was the prime focus of their being and their retention. So what happens is as soon as you suggest we're going to reintroduce a frog species, the biggest range of geeks you can ever imagine, coming out of the woodwork, all of whom are professional frogmen, and they tell you it can't be done. There's no evidence, there's no bones, there's no fossilised slime. And they make it very, very difficult to do. And if you think that only pertains to frogs, then it pertains to other things too. Now, I'm sure some of you in the audience will be aware that there's been a reintroduction project for white storks at Nep Castle in Sussex. Well, I was involved in the initial feasibility study. I worked with Charlie to bring the, the first bunches of birds in from Poland. And that was a very interesting project too, because when you look at the history of the birds in Britain, it quite clearly was here. They built a nest on the roof of St. Giles Cathedral in 1416. The remains go back to the Pleistocene. But it's a very, very trusting bird. It has always lived alongside people. So if you wanted to hunt a stork, you didn't need to go into a wetland to find them because they were nesting on the roof of your house. 
you'd go up when they came back, break the wings of, of the baby storks once they'd hatched, let the parents feed them, and then, you know, when the parents had stopped feeding them, you'd go up and eat them, and then probably try to kill the parents as well. So there are place names like Storrington near Nep Castle, which a thousand years ago was the Storkstown or the village of the stork. They are accepted as a British bird, so when we looked at the project, we didn't need to apply for complicated licenses to do it. We just needed to get lots and lots of storks release them in Britain, or get them breeding at least in Britain, because these are a bird, when they come out of that egg, they have a sat-nav chip in their head. And if that sat-nav chip tells that bird that it's come from Bedfordshire, or Sussex, or Edinburgh, or Kent, or the roof of this theatre, that bird, when it migrates, will come back to here. When you extinguish that culture and you kill them all and you destroy their nests which might be 500 years old and you destroy the wetlands where they once foraged that they knew intimately, then the culture of the whole thing goes. And though they might occasionally wander across from continental Europe and look down upon us, there is nothing in their head telling them they should stay. So to start that creature again, you have to reignite birds that think they're British. So you look at it and think, well, that's a good idea. Everywhere else in Europe where they've been reintroduced, um, they have been welcomed as symbols of good luck, of fertility, of regeneration, rebirth, life, all that sort of stuff. And then you start to talk to some of the guys in Britain. Now, I'm not going to go through every single letter in this, but as soon as you speak to organisations that are there to conserve wildlife, and in theory on your side, they'll tell you, you can't do it. The, the chicks will die, they'll starve, you can't leave the, they can't leave the island, they'll electrocute themselves and powerless. It's just, it's incredibly off-putting and many people will just basically rationalise it. it's better to do nothing at all than to try to do anything in a situation like that. But we ignored them and we did it. We brought in hundreds of birds from Poland. And if you look at the Nep Castle website today, I have no idea of how many storks there are there now, but you know, they crossed the English Channel. No problem at all. Went down to Spain and Portugal and Africa. They're coming right back up into France. They're breeding. No problem in the British climate. They're doing really, really well here. Some of the birds that have been hatched at Nep and the great oak trees of the old park haven't left at all. They're hanging around with their mums and dads from two years ago, and it's very likely because there's plenty of food in the British landscape as the climate ironically warms for storks that they're just going to settle and breed here and live here all the time. And the most important thing about this, the thing that was always important you must never lose sight of at the end, is that if you can't engage people and get people to the point, ordinary people who maybe don't, are not that hugely interested in nature conservation, but if you can't engage them with symbols of hope and return, why would you ever be interested? And this year at the Green Man Festival in Hastings, it's gratifying to see people walking with gigantic stork puppets flying above them, you know, sides of buildings being painted. When the first birds produced their eggs, sat on them and hatched chicks that fledged at Nep, I was there with Charlie Burrell and Izzy when the first chicks flew down from the nest, had a wee bit of a look at the ground around them, and then flew back up again. There were 500 people in a wet, rainy field watching those birds. Some of them were crying. The day after that, when there was an article in The Guardian about this, 110,000 people dropped a note into Isabella Tree to say they were so grateful. These things engage people. They give them hope. But exotic aside, we have come to a time, and if you pick up you know, your observer's guide to the birds of Britain or your ladybird book of, of birds of the wetland from the 1950s, and you look at it and it tells you that these are common birds, the curlews, they're everywhere, the lapwings, they're everywhere. They're all but gone and they're dwindling fast. 
We never thought we'd see the day where we were taking curlew eggs from the east of England, from American air bases, rearing these in, in incubators and then releasing them back out into the wider countryside to see if we could reestablish a bird that was common. 30, 40 years ago, but the landscape has been changed so profoundly by agriculture that there is now no choice. But whether these are going to be able to find space in an environment where the old bogs and mears have gone, where the old grasslands have gone, where the fields are cut for silage five times a year now, still remains to be seen. But we have no option but to try. We could do this differently. There have been wildcat reintroduction projects in Europe which have worked very well and one of the species we're looking to work with Devon Wildlife Trust on very, very soon is the wildcat. We want to reintroduce them to England. We think the woodcats will do well here. Again, you have all sorts of issues. As soon as you ask the guys in power and the guys that, you know, in theory are working for the betterment of the species, big institutions behind them, you get up and they tell you it can't be done. But the people who are telling you it can't be done haven't released a single kitten, not one. They've subsumed budgets of millions. They have had worthy meetings, but nothing's been done. The only way we're going to restore an animal like this is to be practical. We're going to speak to our friends, the Germans, and talk for a while, but then they actually get on with it. We can know that, you know, from the experience they've said, if we produce 30, 40 kittens a year, and we release them in clumps, that the woodcats will very quickly take the woodlands over again. They're very good at communicating with each other, both through sound and through scent. Females will, will occupy little woodlands, which are perhaps, you know, six to eight acres in extent. They'll live on mice, they'll live on squirrels, they'll live on rabbits. And then the males will patrol through the wider cultural landscape to find them. This is a chance we should be taking. The only ones that are left now are above the central belt of Scotland. The IUCN estimate that between 30 and maybe a couple of hundred pure ones now survive, they are going to be gone again in our lifetime if we don't act to conserve them now. So this is something we're hoping to work with very soon. We've got to do something. We've got to have an environment plan that's meaningful for the next 25 years. And we've got to start paying people who are prepared to take land that is utterly unrequired for agriculture, poor land that generates nothing other than a poor living that's subsidy dependent, that we're going to take this land and we're going to regenerate it for nature. And for people who want to do that, we are going to pay them to do that. It's time for change. Time for change in so many different ways. We are setting up a small trust built a built which will, will mantle um, what we're doing with the rewilding on the farm. It'll be called the Keep It Wild Trust. In the end, it won't just be you know, a bit of a change. It's going to be a change of 300 acres. And if we can add more land to that in time, then this land will be given time to have people not put any more chemicals on it, to let wildflowers that haven't flowered in lifetimes just come up, back up once again to sow their seed so that these meadows are things of true beauty. They're not just a, uni a unilateral mantle of green. You will know you have a landscape that's recovering, that has a future, and that is, is, is setting an example to others right the way through this island of what it is possible to do. Thank you very much. Mary.